Well, our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that you have turned in, so we won't be in one passage in particular. You'll need to sort of lick your fingers and turn from passage to passage, and we'll spend whatever time we can, but we can't spend too long in in just one passage because of uh, the need to make sure at least cover a little bit of the issues on all of the questions. So make sure you have your Bible. We'll start right back at the beginning, the book of Genesis, for the first question. So Genesis, go back to the very first book of the Bible, the 10th chapter. Genesis chapter 10. It opens... This chapter opens, now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them, and then it begins to list the various ones, and the question is this, it says, I just started reading through the Bible, and I'm wondering about the genealogy of Christ via the sons of Noah. Genesis 10 gives a brief genealogy of the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, with Genesis 11 going to do more detail on the descendants of Shem. If I follow the genealogy correctly between Genesis 11 and Matthew 1, it appears that Joseph is a descendant of Shem. That being said, from which of Noah's sons did Mary and ultimately Christ descend? Since we all technically descended from one of the three, I wish I knew which one I came from. Well, I could think I could tell you that, but you have to catch me after the service. Also, after Genesis 10, there does not seem to be anything further written about the sons or descendants of Ham and Japheth. Did everyone important come from Shem, or am I just missing something? Thus far, I'm only through Genesis chapter 11. Well, your observations are correct, and the reason they are correct and why there is this focus on Shem is because uh, the descendants of Shem became the Semitic people, the Semitic people being uh, the people from which Abraham came. And of course, if you know the story of Genesis, you mentioned that you're just through Genesis 11. Well, when you come to chapter 12, the scope is going to narrow exceedingly because God is going to go from this big, sort of big picture view, wide angle, and he's going to zero in on one man, namely Abram and his line. And Abram is uh, from the line of Shem. And so in answer to your earlier question, uh, from which of Noah's sons did Mary and ultimately Christ descend? Same line. Uh, because this was the line that God chose to focus on, work through, etc. Now you ask uh, the question here, let's see, where is it? Um, uh, did, uh, it does not say, let's see, did, did everyone important come from Shem or am I missing something? Well, it's not that the other people are unimportant. It's just that the focus is on the line of Shem, the Semitic people, the Jewish people, and ultimately, uh, Joseph, who was Jewish, the legal father of Jesus, Mary, the physical mother of Jesus, all from that same line. So you're reading it correctly, but maybe just not realizing why the focus on Shem. All right, next question says this. Um, Brian, are we presuming upon God to rather than praying for something, we simply take a verse of promise and just thank him? Now, just a little background about this, because the individual who turned it in uh, gave me a little more background. Uh, this lady says that there, there's some, someone, at least, or some people in her life that say, you don't need to pray, uh, because God has already said in His Word what He's going to do, so all you need to do is find the promise and claim it. Of course, the problem with that is, 
is that it completely contradicts Scripture. Not to claim promises, but to say that you don't need to pray completely contradicts explicit Scripture. Like Philippians 4, 6, and 7, (coughs) be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. James 5.16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Ephesians chapter 6, I mean it's all over the place in scripture. So it's just another example of where an idea sort of becomes popular. It sounds very spiritual, like oh just go to the promise of God and claim it. You don't even have to pray. Uh, Just, you know, again, sounds good, sounds spiritual till you compare it with scripture. And if there is one subject that Scripture, uh, one among a number, one that is so clear on is that is the importance of prayer, bringing our supplications, our requests. Those are the exact terms Scripture uses. So, uh, so though this may sound spiritual, uh, it's not really biblical. Scripture is, is very clear about the importance of prayer in our lives. All right, from Genesis to Revelation, the very last book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, we have the record of the seal judgment, so-called because in chapter 5, Jesus takes the seven-sealed scroll from the hand of God the Father, and every time he breaks one of the seals, a judgment is unleashed on planet earth. You see that in Verses 1 and 2, the first seal, 3 and 4, the second seal, etc. And then when you come over into Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the question is this, very understandable one, Why would these saints want revenge? Because if these unbelievers do not come to Christ, they will go to hell. And you're exactly right. And I think the issue here is that they are already past the point of no return and coming to Christ, and they are headed to hell. Because this is very late. This is at least past the midpoint of the tribulation when this seal is opened, and it's much later. And uh, we read in chapter 14. Look at what chapter 14 says about those who by this time in the tribulation have already made their decision. They've taken sides with the Antichrist. They've lined up with him. And so we read in chapter 14, verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone receives or worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, Now understand, this is something that people will do during this time. Not saying there's no deception involved, but they will do this knowingly. Not accidentally. They will do this knowingly. They are taking sides with the Antichrist. So anyone who makes that decision, who makes that choice, verse 10, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So in light of that reality and in light of the fact that Revelation 6 is at least 
6, 9, and 10, is at least past the three-and-a-half-year point. You've already had the two witnesses, depending on where you place them, and I think the evidence leans more toward the early part of the tribulation. You've had the 144,000, which are mentioned in chapter 7. You've had the two special witnesses. You've had all of this evangelism going on, and you have people making a conscious choice, no, I will side with the Antichrist. So they're past the point of no return. These are the ones who will who will slay the martyrs, who will kill these martyrs who are under the altar. It's those who are in the kingdom or the domain of Antichrist. They're the ones that will kill saints. So they've made their choice. They've, in all likelihood, received the mark of the beast. Their fate is determined. It's decided. So all these saints are asking is, Lord, when are you going to carry out what is righteous and just? When are you going to, this is, it is, is, there's no question about the justice of this, the rightness of it. So how long until you carry it out? In verse 11, notice that they're not rebuked for this. These are, these are uh, perfected saints, that is, in heaven. Not a wrong perspective. So their perspective is right. They're not rebuked for this. Verse 11, then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So the question shows, it's a great question because it shows a heart for lost people and and a heart longing for people to escape the judgment of hell. That is totally right. I mean, you think of Paul's statement in Romans 9.1, I have continual sorrow in my heart for my Jewish brethren because they are lost and separated from Christ. You think of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your uh, children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. So a heart that longs to see lost people saved is right. And so it would be understandable that if we don't have the full picture, we'd look at this and say, this seems wrong. Like they're just, you know, hoping they'll die and go to hell. No, this is, this is far into the tribulation. They've made their choice. They've made an irreversible choice. And so the, all the saints are asking is, Lord, when, when are you going to carry it out? We know it's righteous. We know it's just. How long until you carry it out? And basically the Lord's answer is, it's not time. It's not time. Just be patient. All right, next question. Uh, this is from Revelation also. Uh, over in Revelation 21 and 22, Revelation 21, <clears throat> it says this in verse 12. It says also, referring to the new Jerusalem, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east. By the way, just in case you tend to spiritualize this and try to make it something, you know, allegorical and not literal new jerusalem with three gates on the east three gates on the north three gates on the south three gates on the west uh, and then it goes on to talk about the wall of the city etc now here's the question there are 12 gates in the new jerusalem why will we be passing through these gates what is it that we will be doing in other words what will we be doing outside the new jerusalem and the question that i can see why you would have this question assumes that the new jerusalem is equal to heaven. In other words, well, if you go to heaven, why would you ever want to leave heaven? But that's the, the wrong assumption. The new Jerusalem does not equate with heaven. In fact, John says back in verse 1, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. So the Lord is going to lay bare this present heaven and earth 
with fire, reduce the elements down to their most basic substance, and then fashion a new heaven and a new earth. And part of the new heaven and the new earth is the capital city, the new Jerusalem. So contrary to to popular thinking, and, and you want to be careful about saying this to someone, it's not technically accurate to say that you're going to spend eternity in heaven. The more accurate way to say it is you're going to spend eternity in the new heaven and the new earth and the capital city of New Jerusalem. So what, why, then so it comes to your question, why will we be passing through these gates? Because we won't be limited to the new Jerusalem. We can go anywhere in the new heaven and the new earth or the new Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting, if you take some of the descriptions of the New Jerusalem, and we don't have time to go through all of them, but if you take all the statements found in the book of Revelation of the New Jerusalem, it appears that the New Jerusalem, which, by the way, will be 1,600 miles cubed. 1,600 miles cubed. That's the city. The city of London is 140 square miles. This is 1,600 miles cubed. So, like distance further than from here to Chicago, and it's not just square, it's cubed. So that's a massive city, and the descriptions of it seem to imply that it will be suspended between the new heaven and the new earth. So there will be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, capital city, suspended, and we, are, we can go to any of them. So our eternal abode will be technically more accurate, rather than just say we're going to be in heaven, new heaven, and new earth, and new Jerusalem. All right, back to Job 30, or 42. Back to Job before the book of Psalms. Job 32. I'm sorry, 42. There's a statement about 32 in this question. That's why I keep going there. But Job 42. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Job, you know, he has this, this, these massive, and I mean massive, um, heartaches that hit him his children killed uh, his health taken away and and that's the early chapters and in the text is very clear that job and all of this did not sin or charge god with his wrong and then if you know the story his his friends come to him now please understand you will really miss a key element of the book of job if you fail to see that these three who came to him were his friends so much is said about them, you know, funny comments like, well, friends like that, who needs enemies? And, you know, friends, wink, wink, and friends. And No, no, they were friends. The text tells us they came and they said nothing for days, but just mourned with him. These men loved Job. They were his friends. They meant well. But their counsel to Job was woefully wrong. And so then they, basically they began to say, if you read the whole account, they began to say, Job, the only explanation for what you're going through is there is sin in your life. There must be sin in your life. And so Job is defending himself, and that's, of course, how the book unfolds. So you have these three men, but then near the end in chapter 32, this fourth guy steps in, Elihu, and the question is this, and he talks for several chapters. And the the question is, does Elihu say things that are true about God and Job, or is he included in Job's friends who speak in folly? As chapter 42, verse 8 says, look at verse 8, or verse 7, And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, 
For you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering and my servant Job will pray for you for I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So the question is, does Elihu, because he's not included in here, and the fact that he's not included in this, this, this uh, rebuke, as it were, uh, from God to these three, indicates that if, if he didn't speak accurately, then it certainly wasn't in the category of these three friends. He obviously doesn't receive the rebuke. He doesn't receive the warning. He's not instructed to offer the sacrifice, go to Job and see, ask Job to pray for him, etc. But because there's really not a lot of response, divine response to him, we need to be careful about making an assessment. Because if God doesn't make an assessment, you need to be careful about making your own. So does he say things that are true about God or, and Job? Well, at least they weren't at least they weren't as wrong as the other three, and maybe, by implication, they weren't wrong at all. So possibly, in answer to your question, it's possible, yes, that his comments were true. But if you read them, he does seem very close to the other three, but not quite as harsh. And so, in follow-up to this, the final question is, furthermore, what is Job's specific sin? Here was Job's sin. Again, I recounted just the history of of the the unfolding history of the the story so that you have it again in your mind. Here was Job's sin. When it started, the text is clear, he did not sin. He did not charge God with wrong. But the more his friends pushed him, the more, and I'm going to say this because I'm waiting for for someone uh, in the counseling community to do an assessment of Job's friends who are counselors as just a great study on things that we as counselors need to avoid. I've yet, maybe there's one. I haven't seen a really good uh, uh, sort of evaluation of that. But here's what happened. Job's friends who came to counsel him, their, their counsel was so wrong that they kept backing him into a corner. Job, there must be sin in your life. There's no other answer to this. No other explanation. That Job went overboard, and at first he was just defending himself. There is no sin in my life. I don't know where there's sin. There's nothing there, but he went too far and began to impugn God. Because Job didn't have the whole story, because he didn't know what had taken place behind the scenes, the conversation between Satan and the Lord, he thought, you know, I know there's not, I'm not being punished for sin, which was true. It wasn't self-righteousness. It was just accurate. He wasn't being punished for sin. You know, it was this massive test from Satan uh, uh, to him and this dialogue between Satan and the Lord. But he didn't know that, and he knew it wasn't sin. And so in his attempt to defend himself, he went too far. And if you read it clearly, you start seeing Job as it goes on. He's getting more worn down and more worn down. Let, Let that be a warning to us, beloved. The longer your trial, the more worn down you get. You get worn down and you begin to say things about God that are not good, that are not right. And that was Job's sin. That's where he went too far, which is why beginning in around chapter 38, the Lord says, okay, Job, you've gone so far. Now, understand, he didn't go nearly as far as his three friends. That's why I look at the end here. The Lord restores him, and the Lord rebukes the other three, and they have to have Job pray for them, but he did go too far. 
And that's why the Lord said, Job, sit up and let me ask you some questions. If you think you've got this all wired and you understand it, then you tell me, you know, when I laid the foundations of the earth and told the sea it could only go so far, can you explain that? Were you there? Do Do you understand that? Showing, Job, when you don't really know something, the best thing you can do is be quiet. Because when you talk too much, you, you, it's dangerous. And Job went too far. It's an it's amazing, amazing story. So many insights. But let it be a lesson to us, beloved. When you don't understand something about what God is doing and why he's doing it. And we've all been there. Probably a number of you there are there now. If, you, if, you can't, if you're confused and it doesn't make sense and you're hurting and it's long and you're worn out, be careful what you say. Zip your lip. Because it's easy to say something you shouldn't say about God because you don't have the whole story. And Job didn't have the whole story, and he went beyond where he should have gone. All right, next question says this. uh, You said specifically that Jesus did not descend into hell, but the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. That's right. It does say that, and it's wrong. I don't know how else to say that. It's wrong. It, uh, the Apostles' Creed, by the way, was not written by the Apostles. It, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was written to reflect, and for the most part, the theology of it is, is very good. But it's written, written to reflect uh, what the, the assumption of the, the Apostles' doctrine or theology was, but that statement is wrong. It's just inaccurate. It's based on a misunderstanding of Ephesians 4, which talks about Jesus descending, and some translations say, to the lower parts of the earth, which should be translated to the lower parts, namely the earth. It's talking about his incarnation coming to the earth. And then the statement in 1 Peter 3 that he went and preached to the spirits in prison. The combination of those two passages is what is behind, a misunderstanding of them is what is behind not only the Apostles' Creed, but so many inaccurate things about Jesus going to hell. Jesus could not have made it any clearer on the cross when he said, it is finished, paid in full, that he didn't have to go to hell. Makes no sense if Jesus said, paid in full, all paid, and now I got to go to hell for a while and pay some more. Makes no sense. He paid it all on the cross. He didn't go to hell. Where he did go is to the spirits in prison. That wasn't hell. And he didn't go there to suffer. He went there to make an announcement to them as 1 Peter 3 indicates. All right, next, pass, or next question. Let's go to John 21. John 21. It's not, the question isn't on this passage, but this is such a, a a, a tremendous passage to answer this question, and it really is a, a, a rich passage for us. And the question is this, does God have a unique will and plan for me in my life and for every individual Christian, or does he only have a general will for all believers to be sanctified and become more like Christ, etc.? Well, you are correct that there are uh, a number of statements, at least seven Six or seven statements in Scripture that specifically state God's will. First Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Uh, First Peter talks about this is the will of God, that if you suffer, you suffer not for wrong. There, there are a number of statements that this is God's will. So God does have uh, a general will for all believers to be sanctified and become more like Christ. However, however, 
God does have individual plans for each of our lives, as illustrated by John 21. And what you have here in John 21 is Jesus appearing to the disciples, one of his post-resurrection appearances, and he uh, speaks to Peter, beginning in verse 15, and you're, you're familiar with this interchange. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love three times, and Peter's grieved, and so this is the Lord sort of restoring Peter because of his denials and so forth, and he restores him. And then they're walking along somewhere on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus says to him, verse 18, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Well, what does that mean? John tells us. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. This is Jesus telling Peter he is going to die a martyr's death for him. Well, Peter, by the way, Peter and Jesus are walking along. John is following behind a little ways. And verse 20 tells us, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, who is the, the one who, or who had said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? So Peter just got the Lord's plan for his life. Now he wants to know the Lord's plan for John's life. Okay, I'm going to die a martyr's death. What about John? And this is, beloved, this is so classic. This is so helpful to us. Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, in other words, if my will, you're going to die early because you're going to die a martyr's death, but what if I want him to live until I return? What is that to you? You follow me. This was Jesus' way of saying to Peter, Peter, don't worry about my plan for John's life. You just worry about my plan for your life. He wasn't saying to him, by the way, that you shouldn't care for your fellow. There are so many passages in the New Testament about us caring for one another. He wasn't saying live solo, independent life, don't care about anyone else. But he's just saying, you know, you don't need to be fixated on my plan for John's life. Just make sure you carry out my plan for your life. And this is such a great reminder to us. Because it's so easy in the body of Christ, the family of God, look around. Well, but Lord, why are you doing that with that person? What about that? And, I don't, and you know, you just can get off focus. And it's as if the Lord says, well, you don't worry about my plan for John and Mary and Susie and Sally and Tom. Just, you know, if they're walking with me, you don't have to worry about, well, what about the specifics of your plan for them? You just follow me. And so this would be an indication, not the only passage, but it was clear in these two, Jesus had a specific plan for Peter's life, martyr's death, not for John. And we, from all that we can gather from historical tradition, John didn't die a martyr's death. In fact, he may have been the only one of the apostles who didn't die a martyr's death. All right, next question, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And the question is this, does God still use dreams, visions, angels, the Holy Spirit, and other people to speak to us today? Is there any indication in Scripture that he does not? Hebrews chapter 1. Notice how the writer of Hebrews opens this letter. He says this. He says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. 
So the writer of Hebrews opens by saying, listen, if you look back, it's obvious God spoke in various ways in various, in, at various times, just like the, time, the ways you mentioned, dreams, visions, angels, Holy Spirit, direct revelation, all of these things. So this is what God did. No one would deny that. You see that in the Bible. So in the past, this was what God chose to do. But notice what the writer says here. God who did this in the past has in these last days spoken to us by His Son or in His Son whom He has appointed heir of all things through whom also He made the world. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, listen, God communicated to us in the past in a lot of different ways, a lot of forms of revelation, but His ultimate form of revelation, His pinnacle form of revelation, His cumulative form of revelation is His Son. What is said about his son in the Gospels? What is said about his son as delineated in the epistles? What is said about his son in the culmination of his son's work in the book of Revelation? That is the pinnacle of God's revelation. So does this passage state that God can't speak through dreams, visions, angels? No, it doesn't state that. Nobody can tell God what he can and can't do. But what our job is, is to try to understand what God himself has chosen to do. And this passage, at at the very least, at the very least, hints that this is the way God used to do it in times past, but now the way he speaks to us is by his Son. Because there can be no higher form of revelation, no deeper, no further form of revelation. So it's at least an indication, if not a stronger statement, that this was what God did in the past, implied Because we have the revelation in His Son, we shouldn't assume that it's going to be the same way it was in the past. So again, is this passage saying God cannot? No. God can do whatever He wants. But what it's saying is, when we look for revelation, information from God, or let me say it more plainly, if you want God to speak to you, read your Bible. Read your Bible about His Son. Read the Gospels. Read the Epistles. Read the book of Revelation. If you want God to speak... That's the way he's going to speak to you, says the writer of Hebrews. All right, next question says this. This is on 1 Corinthians 13. It says that love always trusts. And, of course, it depends on your translation because each is worded a little differently depending on your English translation. But love uh, believes all things or always trusts. So does that involve believing everything one says? And the answer is no, it does not. What 1 Corinthians 13 is saying, it is not saying love, because you love someone, you believe error. If someone tells you something that's not true, that's not love to believe that. Because it says always trust. It doesn't mean if you know something not to be true or if there's reason to question something to be true, that's not loving to believe it. And in fact, it's not unloving to be skeptical of it. Not at all. But what 1 Corinthians 13 is saying is love believes the best and gives the benefit of the doubt unless the evidence proves otherwise. That's what love is. Love is not cynical. Love is going to believe the best, give the benefit of the doubt, but if there is compelling reason not to believe what what someone is saying, it is not unloving to question that. So no, it's, it's not, does that involve believing everything one says? Not if the person is saying something you know is 
inaccurate, an error or lie or a lie. Or you have reason to believe it's inaccurate or a lie, etc. All right, next question says this. Is fear sinful? If so, is it different, is, is different, let's see, if so, is different than the fear of the Lord? Okay, so in a sense, you, as you worked your, your way through the question, you answered it. Fear is not inherently sinful, though you know there are a lot of passages that say fear not, don't be afraid. So there's a lot of those, but as you, as you indicated here, the, the term the fear of the Lord, now it's a lot of times we try to, you know, soften that and change it. Well, that means reverence. It does mean reverence. Certainly does mean reverence. But it's the same word that's translated, whether you're looking in Hebrew Scripture, the fear of the Lord or the New Testament, same word for do not fear. They can be used interchangeably. So it tells us that fear in and of itself is not inherently sinful, but some forms of fear are not right. They're, they're wrong. The proverb says the fear of man brings a snare. And, of course, that's the whole basis behind the excellent book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, where we have a fear of man instead of a fear of the Lord. So some forms of fear are wrong, not acceptable. But you can't just say fear. It's, it's good to, there are some things good to fear, fearing God. Again, that means more than just reverence. There is a proper kind of fear. And Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a strong statement. With fear and trembling. Fear of consequences if you don't take God seriously. Fear of displeasing the Lord. Uh, it's an exhortation to take your Christian life seriously. Work it out. And you should, you should be, it should be significant to you so that you, you work it out with fear and trembling. So fear inherently isn't sinful, but a number of forms of fear are in Scripture obviously shown to be not acceptable. All right, next question says this. By the way, I've got one more and then uh, a question on the study notes from this morning. And I don't have my study notes. So if you have your study notes and you're near the front, I want to grab your study notes from you uh, and just see what the question was, all right? But I'll get that in just a second here. All right, question is this. Pastor Brian, I'm hearing more and more about the Tetrod blood moons coming up April 15th, October 8th, April 4th, 2015, September 28th, 2015. Mark Blitz, quote, discovered this. Is there a connection to more than the Jews regarding this in the Bible? I know of Joel 2.31, Acts 2.19 and 20, Revelation 6.12. Jews see the blood moons as doom, but Joel's tone offers much hope for those who call upon his name. Are there other passages with information we don't want to, and this, this really, I think this last sentence really almost answers it and says it best. We don't want to focus on this, but we should pray for the peace of Israel and Jerusalem. Right, yes, you should. Psalm 122.6 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So you, you've got a statement in Scripture. You don't need blood moons to pray for the Jewish people. And you're right. We, there's nothing in Scripture that would tell us that we need to be focused on this. I, I've, I've, I'm not... I'm not ignorant of this, but I can't say I'm an expert on it. I did watch a video clip someone sent me pretty long, and I went through the whole video clip on this, and one of the things that stood out to me, there were some accurate things in it, but one of the things that stood out to me was the, and I went back to make sure I wasn't mishearing this or misreading it, but was the uh, uh, self-contradictory statements within the same presentation about it. 
And so it's like, well, both of these can't be true. You're saying this, and then you say this later, like this is going to happen. But it actually already did happen, was fulfilled, etc. So you said it well. There is a lot of talk about this. Uh, we, we don't want to focus on this. There's no reason to scripturally. You can, Psalm 122, 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem without worrying about blood moons. All right, next question. What are your thoughts on the miracles from the book Heavenly Man with Brother Yun? I think that's how you say it. Uh, a lot of my friends point to that book as a reference to show that miracle signs and wonders are alive and well today. Well, my response to this would be that, uh, in a sense, it would almost be inappropriate for me to comment on this because I wasn't there. I read the book. I did, I did read the book. But what I have learned through the years is, you know, it, I wasn't there, so I can't say that the miracles mentioned in this book are valid or they're, they're not valid. Nor can anybody else who uses them to say that miracle signs and wonders are alive and well today. You weren't there. You don't know if it's, it's true or accurate in the book. In fact, I remember a few years ago, I read a book about a Christian in another country. I won't say the country because I don't want to be too specific, but uh, in another country. And it was really an exciting book. And a cert, supposedly certain miracles took place in connection with him. And so then after I read the book, I was really excited. And I contacted some believers in this other country some national believers in, the, in a variety, pretty broad spectrum to say, hey, are you familiar with this guy? And, you know, I read the book. It seemed really exciting to me. And I was, I was quite surprised by the, uh, the feedback I got. They said, yeah, we're familiar with that. But a lot of the claims in there are uh, they're pretty questionable. Believers who know the situation well here, and I just thought, well, that was disappointing, actually, because I thought it was a really neat book, pretty exciting. But, but you know, to hear them say, well, you know, it's, you know, not purposeful misinformation, but maybe exaggeration and that type of thing. And I thought, what another reminder of just of being careful and not just assuming just because it supposedly happened in another country and someone wrote a book about it, it's true. You don't know if it's true. So I've read the book. Was it true or not? I can no more tell you if it's true or not any more than the people who are trying to use the book to show that it's true can really comment on it with intelligence. Nobody can. You weren't there. But um, be careful about, therefore, uh, presenting it as fact when you don't know it's fact. That would be my input. All right, I think we have a, a final question here. And it was on, let's see if I can find the, the question. Um, let's see. Okay, yeah, ver- questions 21 and 22. This is the story of the man, of course, the paralytic. And uh, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. And someone wanted further elaboration on question 21 says, what issue ought to be what weighs on us more than anything else in life? And in the, in the flow of the sermon, I said, the issue that ought to weigh on us most is our sins. That is the most, that is the most severe issue in our lives. Um, but then the next question, we tend to minimize what? We tend to minimize the severity of our need. We don't really see how severe our need is, which is why we're so prone to focus on externals rather than internals or that which is temporal rather than that which is eternal. Now, I'm not sure what the question is exactly, but I, I thought even as I was preaching this morning that I could maybe, I may have accidentally miscommunicated the idea that even as a Christian, you ought to be plagued by your sins. That's not true. So if that's what I inadvertently communicate, if that's what you're wrestling with, then it was my bad on that. Uh, I wasn't implying that as a Christian you ought to go around moping uh, because there ought to be joy for forgiveness. But I was just talking about in the flow of the story, and this man 
coming to Jesus assuming his, his deepest need was his paralysis when in reality his deepest need was the sinfulness of his heart. So that is the issue, certainly prior to salvation, that ought to weigh on us more than anything else in life. And I'm not suggesting that once we come to Christ that there's a sense in which we forget about them. But don't, don't fail to remember Jesus' words, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. So there is something healthy to remembering how much we've been forgiven. Because Jesus said the more we recognize how much we've been forgiven, the more we will love. But we do tend to minimize the severity of our need, the sinfulness of our hearts, and that's, that was so powerfully illustrated in that story from Mark this morning. So that's what I was referring to on those, uh, those two questions in the flow of the message. Okay, that's all the questions that were turned in. Uh, great questions, and uh, let's stand and close in prayer. Father, thank you for another wonderful Lord's Day to be together with your people this morning and lifting our voices in praise and adoration and, and uh, working through your word. And just what a privilege just to view the Lord Jesus, to, to watch him, to watch him act, to, to watch him speak, to listen to him. Uh, he's, he's so shocking to us. We tend to think that we know how he would have acted or what he would do, but if we, if we would be honest, we are often completely shocked at what he does and the way he does it and what he says. So it is very good for us just to weakly gaze upon the Lord Jesus, to hear his words, to see his actions, to behold his reactions, to watch what he does, to watch what he doesn't do to see how he says it, to see how he does it. So we are thankful just for that snapshot this morning of of seeing him minister to the paralytic and and going to the man's heart first in his severest, deepest need, his sinful condition. And Lord, even as we were talking here on this last question, it, it doesn't come naturally to us to see things that way. Our problems in life, the external issues that we have, our trials, those are the things that so easily preoccupy our attention the 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 tangible things not the intangible the temporal not the eternal so we pray that just reminders like we had this morning and reminders when we look to your word and reminders when we go to prayer and and ask you to to sanctify our thinking and our perspective that would just would slowly incrementally turn us toward a clearer perspective on life more of a vertical rather than merely horizontal which is again it's our tendency So we ask for this grace in our lives, acknowledging that even as believers it doesn't come naturally to us, but we want to think that way more and more as we grow in likeness to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.